Before we get started, I wanted to thank Prevail Infoworks, the sponsor of today's podcast. Prevail Infoworks is the only global, full-service, tech-enabled CRO and e-clinical service provider harnessing historical and publication data alongside ongoing study data in real time. Get the most out of your study data and schedule a demonstration of this service for yourself at www.prevailinfoworks.com. And be sure to meet the Prevail team at the Outsourcing Clinical Trials East Coast Conference in May or at their offices in Philadelphia. Again, take a moment and explore their new look website at www.prevailinfoworks.com. Check them out. Leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards in stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Mergers and acquisitions may be a path to creating value for life science companies, but talks can break down because of flaws in management thinking that skew their sense of the value of their company. Oded Ben-Joseph, Managing Director of Outcome Capital, applied behavioral economics to the M&A front to discuss how cognitive biases can derail M&A transactions in an article in the September issue of InVivo. We spoke to Ben-Joseph about cognitive biases why the life sciences sector is particularly prone to them, and what executives can do to minimize their effects. Odit, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Danny. Pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about life sciences M&A deals and, and look at what behavioral economics can tell us about how cognitive bias, things like emotion, misconceptions, and wishful thinking undermines the creation of value through these transactions by leaving them unconsummated. As someone who advises life science companies on M&A transactions, this is something you've seen intimately. I think that because this is a science-driven industry, people might assume companies have a fairly rigorous data-driven process when it comes to decisions around these types of transactions, but human beings are human beings. How significant a problem do you think it is with regards to life science M&A deals? So uh, I think it's uh, very significant, and as a matter of fact, I think it's uh, central uh, to uh, any transaction that I've seen in uh, my career. Uh, While I agree with you that, uh, yes, uh, in the life sciences industry, we have a lot of PhD, MD uh, level people. that uh, presumably are more data-driven, uh, scientifically inclined. The reality, however, is that uh, sort of uh, people think emotion, uh, emotions first and rational uh, second. 
And this is a, a challenge that uh, we face uh, sort of on a day-to-day uh, basis uh, with our uh, with the companies that we advise. In addition, uh, uh, I think um, the life science industry is particularly prone to this issue uh, for the simple fact that we cannot really use objective parameters that are used by other industries, uh, such as EBITDA multiples, revenues, margin, growth parameters, and so on that uh, other industries, technology, oil and gas, whatever it is that you would like to think about, that this is a completely different segment uh, with a very different dynamics in which people invest or acquire based on uh, perceived future value as opposed to uh, present value. And that that makes life a lot more difficult, uh, particularly for uh, executives and board members. Well, when we talk about cognitive biases, what are you talking about? What are the most common forms of that that executives are are prone to experiencing? Um, I think there are a number of those. Again, from our experience uh, at Outcome Capital, uh, I think the most pronounced bias is the inability to take the external view. Uh, in other words, maybe to take a, a statistical perspective that is based on evidence from, from the outside world as opposed to an, uh, sort of a, a myopic, uh, inward-looking uh, perspective. Uh, I think that's by far is the most pronounced uh, issue uh, with the life science executives. They tend to be very science-centric. Uh, they are very focused on, on their company. Uh, while being completely oblivious to a great deal of data uh, in their industry. Um, so our job, uh, first and foremost, is to sort of, is to uh, align uh, technologies and companies with the dynamics of the segment uh, that they're in. And more often than not, that segment uh, is going to be the determinant of the, fu- uh, of the future, the reality and the future of that company, a lot more than uh, uh, the CEO or even the scientist. My point here is that uh, taking the external view is uh, is crucial to any successful uh, uh, path to liquidity uh, for a company. Of course, there are other biases that are uh, uh, fairly pronounced. Uh, you know, part of that external view uh, uh, and the ability to uh, adopt a, a statistical mindset is the ability of management to uh, to sort of take the, the base the base rate into account. What is happening in your industry, in your particular sector or even subsector? What transactions took place? At what valuation? At what stage of the company? What is it that uh, the buyer universe is looking for in terms of technology? Uh, and, and once you uh, do what we call here at Outcome uh, uh, a marketing landscape analysis, very quickly you realize that every segment has its own dynamic and. While we do see what we call outlier transactions that fall way uh, beyond uh, the statistics, uh, you know, the overwhelming majority of those transactions uh, are going to uh, fall right within the normal distribution of transactions. And our job is not only to think about financial terms, but also think about the probability to closing, which is, this is yet another bias that people often neglect that most M&A transactions uh, <clears throat> do not have a, a good starting point in terms of probability to closing. And our job, and again, by aligning the technology with its segment, with the dynamics of its segment, uh, we're trying to increase the probability to closing, again, which is my humble opinion, 
is just as important uh, as the actual financial terms. There are human beings on both sides of a transaction. Are buyers prone to the same biases, or are there different ones at play for them? So that's a great question. So the short answer is yes. I think we're all prone to uh, cognitive biases, no doubt about that. However, when you have uh, sort of uh, multiple layers of management and multiple people on the sort of buy side, uh, these companies tend to be much larger and they have uh, processes in place, uh, that serves at least to an extent to, to de-bias uh, the system. Um, uh, when when um, sort of highly entrepreneurial small companies usually have a much, uh, they don't have those processes in place and they have a, a much more limited uh, management team. So it's very helpful uh, to uh, to use other people uh, to sort of uh, as 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 a check for your own biases. It's very hard for us to see our own biases, but it's a lot easier for us to see other people's biases. So that's another that's one of the many reasons why a a, a large team uh, tends to overperform a, a much smaller team, and that's one again one of the many reasons why larger companies are in a better position to transact, not just from a financial uh, perspective. They just have a better de-biasing system. Can, can, can you walk us through an example of a transaction and, and the types of ways that these cognitive biases colored the the thinking of, of management? Of course. <clears throat> Again, unfortunately, we see it with every single transaction uh, to, of course, of various degrees. Um, but um, a good example is that we recently worked with um, a very interesting uh, uh, diagnosis reference lab company that actually had an interesting uh, piece of technology, and it was an ongoing business with revenues and EBITDA, which actually makes life a lot easier from uh, that perspective. Uh, and the board has uh, determined that it's time to uh, perhaps sell the company because they sort of reached a glass ceiling with respect, respect to their sales, and there was no real team out there or no ability to develop a, a deep channel uh, in their sector. So they uh, sort of hired uh, an advisor to uh, to assist them in an, uh, an M&A process, a plain vanilla M&A process. Uh, the advisor, of course, took uh, uh, a much broader perspective, the external view in addition to the internal view. But was a much broader perspective and uh, sort of armed uh, armed himself with uh, quite a lot of uh, market data, growth, EBITDA multiple. Who are the players? What are they looking for? What what is the competition out there? Uh, what's out there in the next couple of years uh, on the technology side? Who's going to come in with uh, technologies that could render this company's technology obsolete, and so on and so forth? Uh, and the advisor. Uh, came up with sort of a range uh, that would be in alignment with with market uh, dynamics. And on top of that range, the advisor made an attempt to sort of identify individual synergies uh, with individual buyers. So this is not a a, a uh, one-fit-all approach, but actually a much more tailor-made approach, uh, a targeted uh, point of view. Uh, Unfortunately, the CEO has a very different uh, point of view. Uh, overconfidence uh, is another bias that is rampant in our industry, and of course, he uh, massively overvalued uh, his company uh, and uh, sort of uh, created uh, 
a, a, a whole slew of arguments against the sort of broader uh, market analysis provided the, uh, provided by uh, the advisor. The difference uh, was about 30-35% uh, between the advisor and the, <clears throat> and the company. Nevertheless, as we say, the market is always right. Uh, let's go out there and see uh, and let the market speak. And uh, the advisor ended up with uh, four uh, uh, bidders, four term, four term sheets, uh, three of which were from major multinational firms, uh, multi-billion multinational firms that uh, are active in this particular segment. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, uh, those term sheets were very, very close to the advisor's perspective and were about plus minus 10% from one another. That within itself is a statistical fact. That within itself is the outside view. <clears throat> of course, the CEO did not accept that uh, outside view, uh, despite, despite this ample evidence, and chose to argue with every single buyer about valuation. And uh, that, of course, did not go very well. Uh, of course, <laughs> it took a, a very long time. Eventually, uh, you know, uh, I think that uh, M&A process uh, lost a lot of momentum, and eventually the board decided uh, uh, to uh, terminate all uh, M&A efforts. Now, I can tell you that uh, those uh, term sheets, those offers were um, not only realistic, but would, uh, would have been very beneficial, very profitable, both for you know management and board. So it's not that uh, they were way below market. They were very realistic, and it, it's a shame. But Unfortunately, we see that uh, fairly routinely. You talk about various ways of debiasing thinking. I'd like to walk through each of those ways and have you explain them a bit, if you would. You suggest the need to create alternatives. What do you mean? So we we have a tendency to focus on one avenue, uh, whatever it is. Uh, my point here is that. Uh, there's always more than one solution to a problem. And uh, we always try to be creative and uh, provide multiple solutions to a particular quandary. So um, I think creating alternatives, at least as far as M&A, is the most important uh, component. You can do it at multiple levels. Uh, you can talk to multiple buyers. You can reposition the company to uh, uh, an ad adjacency technology-wise. To sort of the to uh, in an attempt to broaden the perspective, broaden the acquisition universe, uh, you can uh, not fall in love or marry one type of transaction, a multiple transaction that could be beneficial to both buyer and seller. In addition to an outright M&A, the multiple uh, you know build to buy uh, structures and uh, licensing transactions and so on and so forth. Uh, there's no need to just focus on just one particular type of transaction or one particular uh, valuation. Uh, so that would be uh, that. That would usually that's uh, the first thing that we're trying to look at is uh, is that. The second thing is that we always uh, adopt uh, uh, what we call a, a statistical mindset. It's an outwardly top-down market-driven point of view. Yes, uh, we are in a position to uh, appreciate the science, the clinical aspect, the technology, but at the same time, it's uh, very important as a debiasing method to, uh, to understand the statistics, the base rate, what is the dynamics of your industry. Because as I said earlier, at the end of the day, it's the external view that is going to determine the reality of that company rather than the internal view. 
You also talk about the value of a, a decision-making matrix or checklist. Can you explain that? Yes, yes, that's, that's a good question. Uh, well, we are strong believers as a debiasing method to use various algorithms and uh, decision-making uh, matrices. Uh, and there's been a lot of research in behavioral economics for the past 20 to 30 years that even a back of the envelope, a simple matrix or algorithm is better than, uh, uh intuition, which, uh, is a, a bad word, uh, it's an adjective, uh, outcome capital. We try to avoid intuition and actually rely on data. So, uh, I think that, uh, management teams would, uh, should think about how is it that A, they can create alternatives, what are the criteria of success, focus on those criteria, you know, within the, within the realm of a number of alternatives, each criteria, and then most importantly, uh, have a, a discussion about that, and uh, that I'm, I'm assuming that if it's a good management team, there's, a, there's an open culture and an intellectual ex exchange type of culture. And it's very important, as I said earlier, to allow other people to uh, keep a check on your biases, because I know for certain that uh, we cannot do it ourselves. You also advise on conducting a, a pre-mortem analysis, not a term I've heard before. Think of a post-mortem analysis. What's the value of doing a pre-mortem analysis? Uh, I think uh, it has a, it, it's helpful. It, it's a given that one of the most uh, pronounced biases in our world is, is uh, overconfidence uh, and what, what we call the illusion of control. You know, CEOs are always overconfident about the technology. They're always, um, uh, they always overvalue uh, what, they, what they have, again, while being completely oblivious to, to the statistical uh, data. So I think that... Uh, Conducting a pre-mortem analysis uh, is very helpful, particularly in that in that respect. It, 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 it's, it's a forward-looking exercise as opposed to a backward-looking exercise, which we always do, uh, as we all know. And what it creates uh, is a, a discipline around thinking not about or not only about the upside of a particular transaction, but actually the downside. What happens if that transaction actually does not take place? Uh, that uh, this is very helpful. We do this uh, uh, routinely. It creates more. Uh, it, it's, it forces the, t the team to sort of leave overconfidence and ego uh, behind and think about again more statistically what are the what can I do to alleviate or to offset or to reduce the probabilities of, of a transaction not taking place. So in that regard, I think it has been uh, very helpful to us over the years. Uh, you touched on this before, but getting advice from your team again it, it helps uh, it helps debiasing uh, yourself. You know, decision makers have a real trouble, as I said, seeing when their minds are misleading them, but they can uh, sort of more readily see that when other people are uh, are biased. So, if you rely on your team, again, as I said earlier, supported by a culture of, of intellectual exchange. Um, I think that will serve to uh, keep one another in check and uh, uh, minimize. I, I don't think you can eliminate biases completely, but it certainly helps to uh, minimize them. And the last point you make is to take time to reflect. 
I said, this is more of a cultural perspective. Uh, I think that uh, most CEOs are type A personalities. They're uh, very busy doing things. Um, my recommendation, strong recommendation, is that sometimes it's better to be rather than to do. Uh, it's very important to take time, time to reflect. And when, when you do take the, that time to reflect, you're much more uh, likely to detect situations in which more careful reasoning and rational thinking uh, is required. Is required. So it's going to keep uh, intuitive uh, responses at bay. You know, we have this uh, system as, as uh, uh, communicated by the, the Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman, the, the you know the fast and the slow uh, system of thinking, and we immediately respond intuitively. And I always suggest to people, both internally and externally, with our some capital, take time to reflect and think about the problem, and most importantly. Allow yourself to change your mind. In the end, is the best way to safeguard against these biases the the creation of a, a formal decision making process. I think the I think that's one way. I don't know if it's the best way. I think the the best way is to first and foremost acknowledge the fact that uh, we uh, we emote first and think later, or at least second. So acknowledgement of that fact goes a long way. Secondly. Uh, adopting a statistical mindset is, in my opinion, the second most important thing. Is there a flip side here? Does cognitive bias also lead to buyers sometimes overpaying for acquisitions and pursuing deals that simply won't create their perceived value? Uh, of course. As we discussed earlier, I mean, there, there are biases, maybe to a slightly uh, lesser degree uh, on the buy side, but yes, we all know of, uh, uh, of what we call outlier transactions that are way out of the sort of normal distribution curve that are, you know, uh, a statistical uh, anomaly. There are many of those. I can give a lot of examples that you rather not in this forum. But yes, so the answer is yes. Well, the article is How Cognitive Bias Undermines Value Creation in Life Sciences m and It can be found in the September 2017 issue of Invivo. Odit Ben-Joseph, Managing Director of Outcome Capital. Odit, thanks as always. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.